you for doing that. Invite you to take your Bible, if you will, and turn to Psalm 85. We're going to be using some Psalms during the remainder of the summer to hear what it is God has to say to us today. Psalm 85 is not among the more familiar Psalms, so uh, perhaps we'll learn something new today. You notice that as you turn to Psalm 85, it says before you get to verse 1, it says to the leader of the Korahites. And those were the those were the choir in the ancient worship of Israel. So this is something that they sang, and it includes a lament. It includes a petition asking God for something in, in particular, and it also points a way to a great future. Beginning at verse 1, Lord, you were favorable to your land, you restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You pardoned all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. You notice in these opening verses, the psalmist is looking back. He's looking back at a time in their history when, when God had restored them. This psalm is probably written after the Babylonian captivity. The, the Israelites have come home to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has been almost destroyed. The temple is almost destroyed. And they're seeking to, to rebuild their life there in Jerusalem. And they know that they were in exile, both geographically and spiritually in exile, because they had been obedient to God and they need to be restored. So they remember a time when God has restored them in their past. Those are the opening verses of Psalm 85. And now you hear what the psalmist asks of God, beginning at verse 4. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? And you notice there in verse 6, when the psalmist asked for God to revive the people again, he begins to think about the benefits, the blessings of revival. So you notice there in verse 6, as soon as the psalmist says, will you not revive us again? The psalmist goes on to say, so that your people may rejoice in you. Joy is always one of the byproducts of revival. So as the psalmist turns to think about the blessings of revival, the psalmist continues, verse 7, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation, your deliverance, your healing. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his faithful, to those who turn to him in their hearts. Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet 
righteousness and peace will kiss each other. My friends, this is the Word of God. So the psalmist is remembering, remembering a time when God showered God's favor on the people. They're remembering a point back in their history before they strayed from God, before they fell into disobedience, before they fell into idolatry, before God corrected them by allowing them to be carried into captivity in a foreign land. So God has corrected them. They're now back home, and they're trying to rebuild their lives. And they're asking God to to do it again, to do it again. Do what you did in the past for us. Do it again. Bring restoration, bring revival to the people. You hear what he says. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, verse 4. Verse 6, will you not revive us again? So you hear the heart cry of the psalmist here in Psalm 85. Friends, what I want to invite you to do this morning is to join me, join with each other, make a covenant among ourselves to truly begin praying for revival for restoration. We are looking at a text that reminds us that God can do this. Sometimes we look at the culture around us and we think that things just have to get worse and worse and worse. And that's what happens unless God shows up in awakening the people restoring the people, reviving the people, bringing new life to his people. If a nation is to be restored, if a nation is to be revived, it takes the people of God in that nation to be the instruments of God to bring renewal and revival. So you hear the psalmist praying that. I invite you to join me in praying this. We know that our land, we know that our churches, we know that the people called Methodists need to experience those reviving fires again of the Holy Spirit. So I want to invite you to covenant with me to begin praying now, particularly for the rest of this month, praying that we will truly be the people that God's calling us to be. And we know that for that to happen, God has got to breathe new life into us. I believe that one of the saddest things in the world is a a sick church in the midst of a dying world. The world around us needs us to be the body of Christ. And here, particularly in Western Europe, in the United States and Canada, Australia, New Zealand, in the West, we, we are in a sad situation when it comes to the Christian faith. Around the world and other places, great revival is happening and people are coming to Christ in amazing numbers and the exact opposite is happening here in the United States. There was a point 
in Methodist history when we said we were building two new churches a day. We close about that number now among the people called Methodist here in the United States. And that, that trajectory will continue unless God intervenes, unless we allow God to intervene with a sovereign renewal, revival, awakening for God's people in this land. But that always happens when God's people begin to pray for revival. But people, the people of God don't start praying for revival until they really realize they are tired of the way that things have been going. They repent of the way that things have been going. They begin praying. And we know from church history that when that happens, revival comes, renewal comes. The people of God are awakened, they are revived, and new life is poured into the people of Jesus Christ. And the community around the people of Jesus Christ receive new life. One of the saddest things in the world to me is to look at what really appears to be a sick, weak church in the midst of a desperate, dying world. I hope that we put revival and renewal of God's people at the top of our prayer list. You know, one of the reasons I believe that the Christian community is weak in the West is because of preachers, pastors. I'm in that crowd, I, I, I accept responsibility, we accept, we all should accept responsibility. I'm like the prophet Joel in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament, and if you're going to talk about reviving the people, you've got to start with the priest of the Old Testament. You've got to start with the pastors, you've got to start with the Christian leaders. And that revival needs to come to the Christian leaders in this land. I believe that the world is asleep in the darkness, but too often the church is asleep in the light. We have been given more than we need to live vibrant, devoted lives as followers of Jesus Christ, and sometimes we're just asleep in the light. One of the big issues, I think, in the West is that too many of our churches try to be too many things to too many people. The Protestant Reformation was a time of great revival. And the Protestant Reformation birthed all of our movement. John Wesley was an heir of the Protestant Reformation. During the Protestant Reformation, when we went back to our roots, went back to the Bible, one of the things we recovered was a definition for the church. It's right there in the Articles of Religion of the Methodist Church. It's right there in our document, but it doesn't matter if it's in a document, in a book, if it's not in the pulpit. Since the Protestant Reformation, we have defined the church very specifically. We're not meant to be all things to all people. We have defined the church very specifically. Uh, in the Protestant Reformation and to this day in our Articles of Faith, we say the church is the gathered body of believers. We need to come together and we need to believe something. We need to believe in the Christian faith. The gathered body of believers who gather to hear the pure word of God preached and the sacraments orderly administered. That's our definition of the church. 
All the other things we do to keep us so busy throughout the week, they're good things. But we are called to be the church, that group of faithful believers who give attention to the preaching of the pure Word of God and to the orderly administration of the sacraments. We've got to relearn in this land what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. In the last hundred years, we can see in church history where we have tried to become all things to all people. We've almost idolized reaching people. I've been a denominational uh, leader and we almost idolized reaching people. There's nothing wrong with reaching people, but you need to ask this question. After you've reached those people, what are you going to do with them? I hear a lot of churches who are passionate about reaching people. We are clear that the vision statement of the people called Methodist is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, who will go out and transform the world. So we reach people, not just for the sake of reaching people, we reach people in order to help them, help each other grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure that our pulpits have been focused on that as they should have been in our nation. And if there's, and if there's a fog in the pulpit, there certainly is going to be a fog in the pew. We need to make sure we know what the purpose of the church is. You know, I'm hearing more and more people trying to call the church here in the United States back to being the church. I'm seeing posted on Facebook things like, the stage needs to be replaced by the altar again. Worship is not entertainment. Sometimes Christian folks settle for entertainment. And it may be wonderful, it may be great, but that doesn't mean it's worship. And it doesn't have anything to do with the style of music. All music at some point in its history is contemporary. That's just the reality. Charles Wesley was contemporary in the 18th century. So it's not about a particular style of music, it's about a particular mindset and focus when you come together. Contemporary music can just be a performance, traditional music can just be a performance and not be worship. We do have to allow the altar to replace the stage in American churches again. We need to be focused on making disciples. We, we are called to serve the world, feed the hungry, care for the needy, uh, bound up those who are broken. Those are important things, but those really are secondary to our primary task of preaching the gospel in a way that uses the whole counsel of God, not just a few pet passages out of the Bible, that transforms people and then will change the world around us. The longer I preach, the more aware I am of the danger, of the danger for preachers to become social workers, life coaches, stand-up comedians, storytellers, CEOs of religious organizations, and those are not bad things, but that's not what a preacher is. Do you know the word preacher actually came from Methodism? 
That term was created among Methodists because we were the ones who went around and preached at different stations as circuit riders. So when we showed up, they knew exactly what we were coming for. We were coming to preach. And then we rode on to another place where Methodist people were gathered. And the laity kept things running from day to day. But we, we almost invented the term preacher for a pastor, preacher for a priest. Because we, in, particularly in our earliest days, we knew that our primary calling was as preachers. And that means to preach the gospel using the whole counsel of God's word to transform people for the sake of the world around us. We need to have pulpits again, devoid of life coaches, devoid of comedians and storytellers, nothing wrong with that. But we need, we need to have pulpits again that have converted ministers in them. Because that's not always the case. When the first great awakening occurred here in the United States, one of the things that prompted the first great awakening, that great revival in the 18th century, was a sermon that went around the colonies about the need for converted clergy. I think that sermon needs to go around again. We need to relearn who we are as a church. Preachers need to relearn what it is they're called to preach. H. Richard Niebuhr was an American ethicist, Christian ethicist, who in the 1930s, some of you remember the 30s, I obviously don't remember the 30s, but he wrote in the 1930s saying that much preaching in his day, the 1930s, proclaimed a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That was in the 1930s. Toward the end of John Wesley's life, he looked at the people called Methodists and he was watching them move from being a revival movement to becoming an institution. And John Wesley said in 1786, I'm not afraid that the people called Methodist should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America. But I am afraid, Mr. Wesley said, I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect or group, having the form of religion without the power. You can keep going through the religious motions, having the form of religion without the power. As Methodist people, revival is in our DNA. The spirit of awakening is in our DNA. That's who we were in our better moments. That's who we were for about the first 200 years of our history. Then we became institutionalized. We became sophisticated. We wanted to do it just like everybody else down the road was doing it in their churches. And we lost the fire and the flame of the Holy Spirit, calling people to conversion, calling people to new birth, calling people to new life. That's why God raised us up. As Methodists, it's in our DNA. But we have to look a little closely for it sometimes in this world. Our nation needs a strong church. And as a church, we've got to be clear on what it means to be the church. We need to begin praying, restore us again, O God of our salvation. Will you not revive us again? 
I invite you to covenant with me to make that prayer an important part of your prayer life. life. Many of you have already joined with many of us in fasting and praying as we approach our church conference on August the 27th at 5.30 p.m. I encourage you to make part of your prayer life as we approach that. Make part of your prayer life praying for revival. The nation around us needs revived. And we need a strong Christian community that can do that. You notice at the end of this psalm, the psalmist begins to look at the blessings, begins to look at the blessings of revival. And you notice as the psalmist begins to look at the blessings of revival, the psalmist says something so beautiful. He says, righteousness and peace will kiss. Where truth and grace come together, where God's righteousness and peace come together. Over the centuries, we've seen that verse, and we've often thought that's a beautiful description for the cross. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the justice or the righteousness of God met the love and the grace of God. And flowing from that cross, we find new life. Part of God's reviving work in the church has always been this way. We start with repentance. We have to decide we need to do some things differently. We start praying. We start seeking revival. And we make our way back to the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you think the greatest need in our land today is. But I will submit this to you. The problems of this land will not be solved in the White House. The problems of this land will be served and solved in God's house. When God's people wake up and embrace that revival fire again. So many of our churches are just existing off the smoke of revivals from a long time ago. So I invite you to join me in praying for revival. In a few moments, after we profess what we believe in, the, in our creed, we're going to sing a, a, a common hymn that all of you know, the Old Rugged Cross. It's a great hymn. You might not have known it was written by a great Methodist. We're going to sing that great Methodist hymn, Old Rugged Cross. And you can, as we sing, if you feel so led, I invite you to join me at the prayer rail. Uh, Old-fashioned Methodist prayer rail is a great place to meet God. As we sing the final hymn, I'm going to be praying for revival of, of the people called Methodists, starting with me and starting with our congregation here in the city of High Point. So I invite you to covenant, particularly over the next month, to pray for God's reviving fire to fill us again. So begin thinking about the prayer you want to offer. And I'll give you an opportunity to do that when we sing our final hymn.